Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protest, and the New Century and Composition Literacy Studies is the book I'll be discussing today with its author, Carmen Kennard, who is a professor of English at John Jay College of CUNY. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Please listen into this interview with Carmen Kennard. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Vershawn. Today we are speaking with Carmen Kennard, who has written a provocative new study in composition and literacy studies entitled Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protest, and the New Century in Composition Literacy Studies. It's published by the State University of New York, 2013. The State University of New York Press, 2013. We're happy to have Carmen Kennard to join us on New Books in African American Studies. Carmen, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, sure. And uh, first, I want to start by thanking you, Michelle, for inviting me to um, participate in the, in this book talk. So this is wonderful. Um, so I'll I'll say a little bit about myself. I um I live in Brooklyn right now. Um, I often pretend like I'm from Brooklyn, but I'm actually not. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, raised by a very large working class family that um that had recently migrated from Alabama to Toledo, Ohio, and that becomes I'm saying some like some of this autobiographical information will become part of what I talk about in terms of, of the book also. So I also, I, after my stint in Toledo, Ohio, I did my undergraduate degree at Stanford University where I met Sylvia Winter and got to study with her, to classes with her. And you, know, you often hear people talk about their mentors as kind of saving their life. Well, Sylvia Winter is someone who I look at as having saved my mind. Um, and when I'm thinking through stuff or stuck on something or or just need some motivation, she's kind of she's who I go to in terms of her lessons, her work and what she's what she's come to represent. So the the other thing, the reason why that's also why I consider also part of me because I start I did my undergraduate 
um, years at two significant bookings. So when I start, I started my undergraduate years um, right after my freshman, so like my freshman seminar, my freshman orientation came in at the heels of a spring protest led by black students against one of the largest protests at that time in, in 89, led by black college students um, against what was then called Western civilization. The required Western civilization classes that all students had to take. And so I came into college. You know, I came to college, I was pre-made. I didn't want to hear anything about literature or history or anything. I was there to make money. And so then, you know, there were all these posters from the Black Student Union reminding people what they had gone through with signs like, am I still the invisible man? I thought these people were crazy. I never heard of invisible man. I had never <laughs> read it. And I was trying to get paid. I was trying to be a surgeon and get paid. So y'all can be invisible if you want to. I'm going to do this over here. Um, that was really, that, so, so that was the first, that was, kind of, that was the book end of, I mean, like I said, the first part. And then when I, toward my, end of my junior year going into my senior year was the eruptions that you saw in major U.S. cities when the police officers who beat Rodney King were quit. Mm. So, that, so my undergraduate degree is literally sandwiched between those, those two moments. Um, and, and one of the, the, the things that I remember most clearly and probably, like I said, because I was pre-med, I hadn't really seen I didn't really see any other way to make money um, and get and sort of kind of get out the hood, and that's how I thought about it at the time. So, and I just remember in my first my freshman year, um, you know, this is like I said, this is '89. Toni Morrison has just won. What at this point that was what '88? She won. She went to Pulitzer in '88, so she had just really won. Um, and so we have these white professors who are imagining themselves reinventing Western Civ. So they decide they're going to teach Beloved, but they can't do anything with it. So they bring in Barbara Christian, the late, great Barbara Christian, to mm-hmm. give this lecture to us. Um, and that moment, I can literally still see her standing there. Um, and like, on a class where I thought I would be vocal, I just had nothing to say. Because it was the way, and she was getting in. When, so like, you would have these kind of very rich, elite white students posturing and asking stupid questions and she would let you know that you were rich elite and white and posturing and asking stupid questions <laughs> and get and go get into beloved and deal with beloved in ways that like the faculty just couldn't do um and so that was it was this moment seeing her and seeing this kind of other possibility of what black life could be or even black work um was this kind of turning point and just to enter and even just to like know that it was, you know, really your students, your peers, who had, some of them literally had been jailed just the year before, so that you could sit in this chair and read Beloved, mm. even though it had just gotten the Pulitzer, mm. right? So, um, so this was like, this, these are these kind of, you know, and obviously at, at this point I was also, um, like, like I said, I was heavy pre-med, so I was taking advanced calculus, organic chemistry, um, and at that moment, what I remember about those classes in that moment is I, in order to coax myself to study for that stuff, I would, I would reward myself for every hour of study by reading Angela Davis' Women Raising Class. Hmm. And at that point, I realized, well, maybe this isn't the major for me. And um, so that kind of turned, that, I didn't know what I was going to do instead, but I knew I didn't have to do 
this kind of bourgeois professionalism, let me just get mine mm-hmm. kind of thing that, um, and that really the university had was really sponsoring. Um, and so, so that becomes after, so I decide after I graduate and I decide to join Teach for America. Um, this was when Teach for America was still in its early days. Mm-hmm. I had all kinds of questions about this as a missionary project, all kinds of things that I joined it anyway. And I did my student teaching in elementary school in South Central Los Angeles. And then I got, um, I got assigned to the Bronx to teach in the Bronx. Um, at, at that point, at, well, at that point, still now the Bronx is the poorest congressional district in terms of schooling, so that's where I was placed. And from that point, I never left New York after that. I fell in love with black and Latino youth in New York and have feel like I have been in a kind of battleground for their education ever since. And that's really a roundabout way how I got there. I, wouldn't, I didn't imagine sitting in that seat mesmerized by Barbara Christian that this is where that would take me. Wow. But um, that's pretty much how I got from that to here. Usually the next question that I ask um, authors is to tell me how you came to write this book. But I want to ask you a slightly different question, if I might. I want to ask you about your grandmother. Because in the uh, introduction, you end with a very uh, provocative uh, critique that your grandmother used to utter. That's also the title of your introduction. And she would say, that someone um, would be running with the rabbits but hunting with the dogs yep. <laughs> if they were trying to play two ends, basically. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so can you tell me how you came to write this book and begin with this um, statement, this critique um, that you adopted from your grandmother and how it applies to your topic? So the, that that expression... Because this book is, is basically um, like 10 revisions more onto my dissertation, maybe 100 revisions. Who knows how many revisions past the dissertation. But um, this started as a dissertation project. So my dissertation is actually called Running with the Rabbits but Hunting with the Dogs. Ah. Um, and, and so when – and at, at that point, um, the purpose was – and that was going to be too long for a title. That's really the, 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 main, the main thing there. And I was really trying to push and, and say, and this is part of how I think about teaching, that this, this expression, for instance, just this simple expression, what seems like a seemingly simple expression, is actually quite complicated. It's not translatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about, it's, it says specific things about race and racism when she's using it in those contexts. And it is as theoretically rigorous as anything y'all are up in here telling me. Mm. Um, and so that was really the kind of stance that I was, was having with it. And so that, that, was, that was part of it. That was kind of one, um, I think more, I think I, think, I don't know that I was specifically trying to be subversive, um, but, but, but certainly res, I was resisted to this notion that this was, this thing that I somehow must leave this, language at the door when I come into the classroom because this language is also thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was part of it. And then the other thing is like, you know, being in, um, in graduate school, you know, I will be assigned these texts that will be marked as progressive, that will be marked as radical even, that will be marked as offering 
some kind of, you know, powerful solutions to educational equality for black and Latino students. And, and they would be paternalistic. They would be racist to me. Um, they'll be so incredibly problematic. And so it was like, this is running with the rabbits, but hunting with the dogs. Mm-hmm. Or um, what, I mean, what I see um, a lot of academics doing is running with the rabbits, but hunting with the dogs. So I thought this is a, an incredibly useful heuristic to understand scholarly production that happens um, that is supposedly helping black and Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reasons why I don't trust a great deal of it. Um, and so, so it was kind of twofold. Like I saw, I saw her, it was the first time I was beginning to understand that expression and which is why it kept coming to me. And I was really um, resentful of a suggestion that this language um, wasn't relevant or wasn't, um, wasn't pertinent to my studies mm-hmm. or wouldn't help me. And a little later on, we're going to uh, ask you to read from the book for us. But I wanted to um, share with the readers the one of the sentences in which you use that expression to really get at uh, part of what this book is trying to do. Uh, in the introduction, you write that American schools and universities, through their scholarship and instructional designs, have often upheld a racial status quo alongside a rhetoric of dismantling it. These were not the workings of contradictory and confused individuals merely locked within their space and time. My grandmother understood that such contradictions happen inside of a totemic system. So what's interesting to me um, about that is uh, what I see running uh, a theme running through this book is calling out uh, these instructional designs, even some of the scholarship that upholds this racial status quo at the same time that this that this up, upholding is couched in a rhetoric of dismantling or doing something different. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, and I think in terms of, you know, Thinking of educational research, particularly, and I don't just mean educational research, but educational research is this kind of, or um, how, at least how I get trained, to, I was trained to think of this as kind of in a, this applied social science. And I'm really trying to think, look at um, how you can't, you know, that we think that we can resolve social inequalities, we can find solutions to social inequalities via the same kind of ideological lens that created the problem in the first place and how incredibly difficult it is to break from it. Um, and so, you know, and, and just when, too, in like reading, uh, reading this kind of educational history in, in, in my grad program, um, and it, it was just kind of, it felt like one trek, felt like I was trekking through um, decades of apology. And that was really, that was really, that, that was really it. Like, so, so, you know, I think like, like in the book, I talk about somebody like Tillinghast, who, you know, is, who's really paternalistic against black people, but didn't think they should die the way his contemporaries did. And so 
you know, you get into these grad programs and people talk about killing gas like he was somehow, you know, this kind of radical thinker, modern for his age. Like, no, not really. <laughs> um, and so you get kind of, you get spun this, it was constantly being spun this way. You know, you have to understand, you have to understand the time he was in. And, you know, and so like, and of course, understanding the time that you're in only happens through the lens of racist whiteness. But we can't talk about, well, 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 why don't we look at something from Du Bois and see how he pushed back? Right. And then let's compare. Then let's compare these people. But it was never, so it was just kind of like this trek through apologies. But then it's just, it becomes kind of, it, in those cases, like with something like killing gas, that, that kind of moment, like this 1884, that moment, it becomes very obvious to us to look at this now and to see that, yeah, he was pushing his contemporaries, but he was maintaining white supremacy at the same time. Like, that's really easy for us to see now when we look back at, those, at, at, at that particular moment. Um, or even if you look back to Armstrong and the kind of first articulations of the HTM, HTM model and, and, and this kind of thing where, you know, those students are making mittens. Um, you know, this kind of, should it be liberal arts? Should it be, you know, should it be like a technical school or be liberal arts? That wasn't an argument. They're making mittens. Mm-hmm. This is like some chain gang stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, so we can, you know, we can look back at that now and see, um, how compromised that was, that it couldn't fully break from, you know, this kind of racist ideological mold at the moment. Um, but the, so the, the, the challenge then is to look at ourselves now and see the kind of tilling gas that we have now, or in what ways are we kind of just in, in or just saying, well, this is, I'm just being a realist. And I'm just going, because you know this is a favorite kind of argument, just being realistic. I'm just going to talk about the way things are. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going to work within the system as it is. I'm like, well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, uh, you, know, are, are we, you know, are we talking about Trayvon Martin here? So it's because it's, that's, you know, that's the system as it is. Are you talking about promoting that or letting that keep, letting that keep going? Um, or just we, uh, is the solution just to tell people not to wear hoods? Um, so it's, it's, it's that kind of thinking that but you can't often see it in your own historical moment when you're still locked within your paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm suggesting is, um, you know, that's, that's, I, like, I like my grandmother's expression because she's saying that she can see when you're locked within your paradigm. Right, right. And you, you were very, you start writing from the beginning of this book about a concern that you have about the education of Black and Latino youths, um, in particular, education for youths overall, but but those demographics in particular, because when you were teaching high school, um, these students, some of your students had um, particular ideas about what college life was going to um, bring to them, the kind of value that it might um, add to their intellectual uh, and personal lives, and then you be became a college instructor and saw that some of the uh, things that you witnessed in high school, um, negative things uh, in, 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 in the student's education, were also extended into, the, into college. So what, is the, what, what do you see as the pervasive problems um, for the education of Black and Latino youths? Ooh, um I guess because 
I guess at root um, of this, that this is this isn't a system that's designed for them or that has them in mind. I know that sounds like, um, you know, I guess it's almost like 1980s Audre Lorde, right? In terms of, and some people will think that that's kind of old school or some kind of throwback to the 60s. But you, you can't. The the more we look at the numbers of particularly what's happened to working class and working poor black and Latino students. And you can't just, I mean, unless you're just kind of like the new coming of the KKK, you can't see that there's something wrong with these students. You can't just kind of say there's something wrong with these communities. Now, I do think there's some people who think that. But at, at some point, like, you know, mostly what we do is we kind of offer these kind of Band-Aid solutions, but not kind of unthinking unthinking the whole thing, and I realize that, that it, it, that's not easy work. And I don't think it's work that people really take up, and, and that was that, that's really that kind of grounding lesson that I learned as a, as a high school teacher, because um, and like, you know, because I, I became a teacher at the high, at high school level. I became a teacher, um, I didn't become a teacher you know, um, as a compositionist. My first time in the classroom wasn't as a compositionist, it was as a high school teacher. So I came to the field with that. So I guess I think the, one of the best ways I could think to answer that question was like, was an example of from back when I was like, teaching high school and what, what, I, what, I, what I mean and how I see that in, in terms of, really in terms of like college writing particularly. Um, so when I started teaching high, this was a brand new high school. Um, and that I, that I started teaching that. And so basically what, what happened in the Bronx at that time, so this was 94, 1994, um, there's, there's, there was a high school in the Bronx called Monroe High School. And Monroe High School had 5,000 students, um, more, maybe more like 6,000. They took in 1,500 freshmen every year. So you have, like, like high schools in New York, at least at that moment, were mammoths. They were, they're really more like campuses. They're talking 6,000 high school kids. So they, they're taking in 1,500 freshmen every year. And at most, this is a, a landslide year, they graduate 100, student, 100 seniors every year. No. Mostly girls. 100. And now, and like, if you get a graduation class of 99, you were lucky. Because this would get reported in the New York Times every year. Wow. They, and, and yet, and so like, and somehow the way the numbers went, they would still be reporting like, 50% graduation rate or 40% graduation rate because, you know, they lost some of those students in the system or something. I couldn't ever understand how they came up with their graduation rates when they only, when they never had 100 students graduating. So what the city and the state do is shut this school down. Um, so they shut, they shut Monroe down. And the way that this, the way that it works is, so Monroe High School became six small schools. And what happens is, in, instead of a, the freshman class, the sort of the, the entering freshmen in 1994, instead of them going to Monroe, they have to choose one of these six small schools. And each of those six small schools only has freshmen. The kind of standard kind of phase-out model. And then you add on a new, a new class every year until you have, finally have a ninth and twelfth grade. But your first year, you only have ninth grade. The second year, you have ninth and tenth grade. And, you know, and then they let Monroe fade out. So on... Um, what I remember was on the first day of school, now that this new high school, and, and the new high school that was modeled after Central Park East under Debbie Meyer, it had been a successful mm-hmm. alternative high school experience. Mm-hmm. So on the first day of school, um, 
we had like five students. And so my principal made some phone calls. So you know, this is before the days of text messaging, any of that, or cell phones, any of this. So she uh, she makes a phone, makes a couple phone calls, and she finds out that um, basically all the kids are trying to go to Monroe. Um, they're they're at Monroe with their parents, and so she asks me, she puts me in a cab and asks me to go to Monroe and recruit because we need, you know, we need to fill our number for our freshman class. Um, as it ends up, my driver was um, a gentleman who had a daughter who was tried to go to Monroe, didn't understand what was going on. He's a Dominican man. He was just bringing his daughter from the Dominican Republic to go to high school here. And no, and he didn't understand any of what they were trying to tell him. So on the way there, I explained to him what was going on. And then he ended up, after he dropped me off, and he, well, the second thing he did was he enrolled his daughter at the school. And But before that, he kind of, he walked me to, like, this huge, great lawn. And, like, so there was a kind of auditorium where the students, well, it's getting kind of long. But anyway, there's, a, there's an auditorium where the students are supposed to sign, you know, sign up for their school. I never made it to the auditorium because the parents just, like, swarmed me, like hundreds of them, and wanting to know what was going on. So you had, like, you're, you're talking hundreds of parents just on this lawn trying to figure out what's going on, because somehow they didn't get the message that Monroe High School was not was no longer in existence. Mm. Um, and so, again, like, you can't say, so, like, again, this is, this is 1,500 freshmen are supposed to show up this day. So you can't say that kind of 1,500 parents, 1,500 families are just stupid. And, and clearly they understand, clearly they care about their children because of the way, like, I never, like I said, you know, and this is, this is that autumn sun, so I'm just standing in this blazing hot heat. And then finally, um, at the, after a couple hours of that, the, um, the parent who I was telling about, the father, he comes back and, and picks me up and takes me back to the school after I've been pretty much standing there all day and, and recruiting. And what I just remember that day because I remember I, I had on, I remember what I was wearing because I was trying my best to look like an adult. I was about 22, 23, and I looked like I was 16. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing here trying to convince these parents that um, their children will be okay and that I have their, I have their best in mind. Um, and so, like, like, I'm, you know, it's like I said, I'm, like, standing there trying, to, trying to, to convince them of this. And so, now, what, now what happens, like, we know, we know what Monroe looked like. We know what that system of education looked like, and we know it didn't work because not even not even a hundred students were graduating every year. So then we have these six small schools, and at this point, this is before No Child Left Behind. This is before all of these kind of draconian testing and things like this. So the curriculum is really wide open. So, for instance, in my first year, um, the books um, we could go as long as we could get a bookstore to go have a vending license with the Board of Education. It was fine. So, like, I ordered my books from all black bookstores and all Latino bookstores in the area in, my, in that first year. Mm-hmm. It's like we could, you know, like we could reimagine, you know, the door was wide open. We didn't have any, uh, we, we had a portfolio system that we could design any kind of way we wanted. But, like, um, we could really redesign the nature of schooling. And we couldn't do it. And, like, as each year went on, um, it just reverted back to that old traditional model right. that we knew wasn't working. Right. Yeah. And so, like, and the principal 
didn't really, um, she didn't really know how to or didn't take the initiative to think about, well, what, what should this teaching body look like? Mm-hmm. What should this, what should the teachers at this school, should they, where should they come from? Where should they live? What kind of, what kind of definition of teaching should they have? Right. Or are you just going to think about, um, you know, skills worksheets? What kind of skills worksheets do you have? So, like, all of this, like, at the end of the day, and, like, those, so, so from the administration all the way down to the classroom. So even, like, we could decide as a community how we wanted the cafeteria to look, where we want the cafeteria to be. We still have to use the New York City Board of Ed that ridiculous food, but we could decide like the kind of chairs we wanted or, you know, even like, and we were getting a new building, how we wanted the building to look all, and you know, and like, like I said, but at the end of the day, um, there was no, to me, there was no real break from a traditional model. And it was the default. Right. Exactly. Do you find the same to be true of, um, freshman composition? or the college education Absolutely. overall? Absolutely. Um, even, I mean, in some ways, I feel like higher education can be, I mean, higher education can almost be worse in terms of, like, you know, even if you, this is, this will be my fourth university that I've worked at now. So, yeah, so the the last two um we're trying to redesign the liberal arts curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so after one university, after four or five years, the curriculum looks the exact same. And so, like, you know, there's a committee to design, there's a committee to look at the issue and then to come up with a resolution, mm-hmm. come up with a new plan, and then, you know, and then there's another committee to look at the plan the last committee made, and the curriculum is just the same. There are no new innovative majors or disciplines, um, and, you know, faculty are so wedded to their disciplines, they're not willing to question. And this is like, this is really that kind of Sylvia Winter imprint mm-hmm. where she was like, you know, you need to question how these disciplines themselves as ideological systems maintain racial violence. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, so like there's no kind of interrogation of what, what are the social ramifications of the kind of way we think in this field. So it's almost even worse than the high school model. So your book, your book tries to intervene into that situation, um, into um, actually the uh, the um, the uh, how we understand the formation of um, composition and literacy for African American uh, uh, students in particular, or it's a it's association with race and black protest. Can you tell us what the particular aims of your book is in regards to um, the profession that you're in? Yeah, in terms of, um, in, in terms of composition rhetoric, I feel like the kinds of, um, the kinds of arguments and the kind of issues that we're discussing, even if they don't really go very far, um, there's no real kind of intellectual recognition of them having uh, a political and ideological origin in black 60s protests mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and we don't, so there's, so there's that. And then, and then there's a kind of new kind of, you know, postmodern chic kind of thing 
that wants to say, well, that's all old, and we don't, you know, <laughs> we, that has nothing to do with us anyway. Right. Right. As if, but all of these, any kind of conversation, the kind of, even the kind of conversation that, for instance, asking about like interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity, or transdisciplinarity, um, what disciplines do, those are exactly the kind of conversations that, for instance, black studies at, you know, in its most non-bourgeois variant, was after. Mm-hmm. That's what it was questioning knowledge at Western universities and therefore Western Western world. So that kind of, uh, so these kind of moments, we don't, we don't recognize. And for, for me, Cop Red is a, a really weird kind of space because, um, I don't know how to say this other than to just say it, but I feel like I've never, I don't know any other field that is this lily white and yet this convinced of its radical progressive nature. <laughs> I mean, it's unfathomable to me that, you know, I, I, find, I find it incredibly conservative. Um, I find it, like I said, just really white. And yet, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's this kind of public rhetoric of itself as, if not the next Frary, then the next Dewey. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing, there's nothing like that mm-hmm. going on. Um, and so, you know, even so, like, like this, the book kind of, it, it comes out of when I'm being, when I'm first getting immersed into corporate, and I don't really see how I'm supposed to be able to enter. I don't really see a place for, for um, the kind of teaching that I want to do in schools or, or in the kind of schooling that I want to see for black and Latino students. Mm-hmm. I don't really see a space here for that. Um, and even in, even in those rare moments where, for instance, I'm in a, in a graduate class and I'm, you know, I am assigned Keith Gilliard, Voices of the Self. Um, and it's never any of his new voices, always Voices of the Self. Um, or, or someone name drops Geneva Smitherman is completely outside of any context as to the history of this discipline, the history of what's happening mm-hmm. socially in the United States, the um, particular history of African Americans in higher education, um, and, and a kind of real unwillingness and almost um, refusal to look at the special. There is a specificity about African American education in the United States. Mm-hmm. That you can't get around, right? And um, and so, you know, I mean, like, and so I just hear <laughs> just these absurd, absurd things, and and for me, it's a kind of intellectual crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, and it's an intellectual crisis that embraces me. In in between your uh, interesting and very well uh, researched and um, strongly argued chapters, you decided to include um, teaching interludes that um, that showcase your uh, interactions with students, but really spotlight the students and their interactions with language and, and, and literacy. Um, why did you choose to uh, include these these vivid moments, these these word pictures with your students? Um. There was a kind of, there's a, 
kind of overall reason behind it, and then they became like a kind of practical reason behind it. I think originally the, the original, original text, going back to my dissertation, was really every each one of these chapters started with a narrative. Mm-hmm. And um, so, for instance, there's a narrative about a student named Rakim who is an activist in his community. And so I took that story, and I um, that opens up one chapter, and then as I talk about student, the history of black student activism in the 50s, or just an overall history from um, the, the, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, um, I keep returning to his rhetoric and his discourse. And that just, you know, so that was the original. The original plan was because I wanted to situate this in classrooms, um, and I wanted to say that, like, teaching really is... It's not just a pedagogical disposition; it's a historical disposition. Mm-hmm. That that these bodies in our class, that how you understand the history of race in higher education, and how you live in that, how you understand that specificity of African American education, um, is compelled a different kind of classroom if you if that's part of your conscious awareness. So that was that was the kind of goal. And now in the so in the kind of publication process that just didn't fly. Having and I, having the 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 narrative in with the history. Who's your? Um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, that just didn't. Uh, it just didn't fly. People didn't like people. You know, so it was just so much resistance to that. But I wasn't willing to give up these stories. Mm-hmm. So then I made them. I made them teaching interludes, but in front of in, in front of like. So a contemporary story, and then the history that illuminates why seeing this student this way is necessary. Mm-hmm. Who, so that that was the compromise I made. Who's your primary audience? Um, when I was when I was right, I was really thinking about new. I won't even say new faculty of color in the field. But I was really thinking about color-conscious graduate students who are sitting in graduate classes wondering, what the hell is this? Hmm. Um, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't, I mean, because, and I mean those students who are going to do something beyond colorblindness, um, the kind of accepted discourse for how to talk about race and among students, really, in today's iteration of universities, and something other than those kind of those students of color who are who are really trying to, who are in this for the hustle, like they are the minority representative when it is convenient, um, and then they go back on to doing anyway, doing whatever it is they do. So um, that's really who, because um, and the reason why I settled there and that being my audience. It's because it's just so, I feel like I faced so much resistance in the things that I was trying, particularly the stuff I was trying to say about Minus Shaughnessy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a no-no. Mm-hmm. Still. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, well, it, 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 might, it might help um, the listeners adjust a little bit if um, we contextualize um, w- what you um, just said. I, because I, 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 I think that... Um, it's very clear in the book, starting from your first um, 
description of when you were a TA um, for freshman composition and you went to the um, day-long orientation and um, <laughs> how you <laughs> were told, not just you, but everybody was told that this, the, this um, diverse student body had um, uh, one goal in mind, and that was basically to become participants in middle-class American citizenry and that a radical um, slant to a classroom pedagogy by focusing on writers of color or um, or interrogating traditional notions of education um, were not things that they wanted to encounter. In other words, this freshman composition orientation was asking the teachers to replicate and enforce and, and teach the status quo believing that all the students um, were profiling actually all the students as wanting that. I think that's very, very key because I think that is pervasive in education overall, but especially when it comes to educating um, college freshmen. And, and this was a compositionist who made this announcement. You know, right. so, you know, I mean, and, you know, and so like in, in those early you know, I'm not really sure what what I thought I was going to what I was going to encounter in this sort of these those first really what I call those first moments as a compositionist. I, I wasn't really sure, um, but you know, and and I had come from seeing this experiment that could have been so amazing at at the high school level to in my mind really flop because we weren't really offering. Um, something new and innovative. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, as this as this high school teacher, and then like so, I literally go from that to sitting in this audience of of this white male compositionist saying that the classroom, and you know, like my classroom was all black and Latino. There was not a white student in the room, mm -hmm. um, and saying that you know your assumption that these students want some kind of a multicultural education or you know questioning the status quo is wrong. That's not what they want. Um, and you know, and, and I was, I was, I was flabbergasted, um, that, you know, just not so much at the idea, but just the kind of just strutting of this and presenting this to an audience of like this incredibly large audience and just how, how normative, um, how normative that was. And even like, I think early in the beginning, I think on my, remember I was, I was, I was called in to you know, the, the person who was in charge of the, the new people teaching comp. Um, because I had a quotation from Carter G. Woodson at the top of my <laughs> syllabus. So I, you know, I got, I got spoken to, right? And so, and this was, this was not someone who, and at this point, because like I said, I have already been a, I was a high school teacher. And, and basically this is at the turn of the century. So this is not like 1994. Yes. This is 1999, 2000. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I have been involved in the New York City Writing Project, you know, like all, and I have done, like, you know, I have been a part of all of these different literacy initiatives. So, like, it's, you know, and I was just, I was treated like someone who had never heard, who had never heard of pedagogy or writing studies or literacy before. And so, like, you know, the stuff that we were assigned, I had already read, you know, I already had a master's degree in education. So, you know, it was, it was, 
you know, it, and, and I was just like, what are we talking about? Even at another point, at, you know, right, really close to that, um, a, a Latino upper level administrator announced, made a similar one of these kind of opening remarks about, and I, I think I mentioned this, and I can't remember if I mentioned some of this now. I think I do when I, when I talk about Rakim, um, student who I call Rakim, because, you know, he, he said that, you know, we have students at CUNY who wear their do-rags to class because they don't understand um, what education means, mm-hmm. what, what a college education means because they wear their do-rags. Um, and, and, you know, and then he started talking about how his own son was at Dartmouth that would never do such a thing because he knows, because he's had the upbringing of a parent with a, with a Ph.D. and who's, a, who's an upper-level administrator, and so who knows what a college-educated person looks like. Mm. And so, you know, it's like, this is, like, this is really violent. Um, and, you know, and then I would look around at the audience and just look around and see, like, is anybody else tripping but me? <laughs> and it would usually be just me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, at this point, would you mind reading uh, for us from the book? Sure. Um, let see. I have a page from the well, – this might be anticlimactic at this point, but um, it's a, one of the paragraphs at the very beginning of the book where I try to um, – you know, I, what, what I try to explain what, why I think this – locus of freshman composition and freshman English is so important mm-hmm. because that's really how I came. You know, I was, it was that classroom that awakened me into being a composition. It's not the other way around. Um, so I'll, I'll read that from the beginning. So it's because of the combination, because of the combination of its marginalization and sometimes utter disdain inside of English literature departments, it's consignment to all entering college students and it's positioning in higher education Freshman English bears the most dynamic intersection of the competing dialogues and institutional politics that frame how literacy and hegemony have been challenged and maintained for the new century in post-secondary institutions. Freshman composition and thereby composition studies collided with all of the policies and all of the protests ushered in by the black freedom struggles. So, um, and then I have this kind of list that I will read, read off. Um, and I think this is really what, really what the, the assignment that I was trying to give myself in this book to make this argument. So, um, like I said, composition studies collided with all the policies and protests ushered in by the black freedom struggle. Student protest movements that linked the disparate cultures of academia and working class communities of color. The national public presence of black student protests at HBCUs and later across formerly white universities. Sudden changes in racial admissions at what had hitherto been all-white universities. Scapegoating as in being deemed responsible for threatening the liberal arts rather than an incoming corporate, um, an incoming corporate marketing of higher education. Competing definitions of purposes of writing instruction for the non-traditional student, non-traditional quotes, canon wars, and other challenges to what constitutes knowledge and disciplinary boundaries in the academy rise of new interdisciplinary programs, methodologies, and areas of study, a new body of professors representing racially subordinating groups, demanding change not only on their individual campuses, but also in their, dis- in their disciplinary professional organization, shifts in content, linguistic registers, and discursive styles in published academic and creative writing, and the proliferation of black audience texts 
by new black writers. As what might be regarded as its new disciplinarity and professionalization, composition studies after 1960 will not only be forced into dialogue with black freedom struggles, it would also be literally conceived alongside these struggles, regardless of whether or not the field's most esteemed leaders and theorists fully welcomed or understood such conversations. It is this forced dialogue that marks the onset and origins of the issues endemic to literacy theory that we mark today as, a 20, as 21st century phenomena. Um, new technologies that, are, that enable the connectivity of multiple unequal groups across space and time, mass economic migrations of poor, non-standardized English-dominant communities, but particularly by public schools and public institutions, new demands on literacy acquisition alongside an utter inability to achieve large-scale educational equality, cultural and racial distance and conflict between the deliverers of educations and the deliveries, and racialized massive poverty and inequality on a global scale as a manifestation of new mode of capitalism. The intellectual and political intersections between social justice and literacy that we have inherited today have origins in a multiracial, multi-ethnic civil rights movement that remains the most protracted struggle for equality that the United States has seen. Very nice. From the, the we uh, talked earlier about uh, the um, blatant contradiction and composition rhetoric or composition literacy studies um, that uh, it, it at, on one hand, it uh, frames itself as being radical and dismantling the status quo and opening up opportunities for diverse uh, student bodies. Um, but at the same time, it maintains uh, the status quo. Do you think that uh, composition rhetoric or composition literacy studies overall can live up to the rhetoric that it set up for itself, the radical rhetoric? I think it, um, I think it, I think it could. I feel like, um, I think it could, but not within like our kind, not within most of our institutional structures. Like I feel like cop rec is living up to, there are, there are moments, for instance, when I'm in the classroom with, with students and uh, bounce and like, you know, bouncing off of them or, you know, like giving them the space where, where I feel like comp has this potential um, to, if we start from this, if we start from this energy, mm-hmm. there are moments when I, when I, when I feel that, but, um, so I, I guess, I guess I, you know, I'm still somewhat on the fence about this question because I, because I feel like there's a kind of bourgeois professionalization that not not just in terms of comp rep, but in terms of academic disciplines. Period. Mm-hmm. And so I think when that moves full steam ahead, um, there, there's not much room for. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that there's much room for intellectual thought. Period. Mm-hmm. Much less radical intellectual thought. Mm-hmm. How do we, um, so, go ahead. I was going to ask, how do we push at those boundaries? Um, well, of course, your book is one instance of pushing at those boundaries. But how more collectively can we push at those boundaries? I, I think we need to gather in collectives that are actually pushing at the, the boundaries. See, see, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that everyone wants to push at those boundaries. People want to be in. People want to be let in. Um, people want to be like part of part of this machine, 
but um, so I, you know, not necessarily because I, I feel like there's some tough questions that there's some tough questions that have to be asked, and asking those tough questions that's not going to make you very popular. And um, in a kind of age of academia, of you know, of commercial academics and celebrity academics, people don't want to talk about the unpopular. Mm-hmm. Or you know, so so or um, I think too that there's there's a you know I guess to be more generous, not always very generous with copyright, but to be more generous, there is a kind of um, this copyright is still marginalized within English literature departments, right? So there's a kind of people feel like they're being attacked um, in the work that they do, or they're being devalued in the work that they do in their institutions. Um, and so when, when those, and you really see this, you really see this in the kind of discourse in the eighties, right? So when people come together at, at comp, at, you know, like at, for instance, at four C's, they're not really critic. They're not really critical of one another. Like you see people at four, you like wonder how the hell are these people friends? Cause I don't read this person's stuff. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, I don't get it. Like, so, so this is, you know. This is some kind of like, you know, family reunion stuff mm-hmm. that I don't, you know what, like, like, so, so in that kind of, um, and I think, like I said, part of that, I, I, un, I sympathize and I understand that part of that unwillingness to be publicly critical of one another comes from the kind of attacks that people are facing at their universities right. and the devaluing that people are facing at their universities. And they don't want to come to 4C, for instance, and be attacked and criticized some more. Right. But, um, so, but, but that's not really healthy. Right. We do need and, a, a, and, a culture of, of critique that that is able to um, also sustain and maintain um, professional and sometimes friendly relations. But not, you know, still, but not sacrificing they, the critique for, for friendship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, there, there are other things that like, that I see other um, organizations doing, like for instance, I think I think it's I think they're called Anthropology Studies Association, and I'm not saying that you know they have some kind of hallmark or some radical activities. I don't think they would think that either. But like you know, um, and I think it's online where they have this commission on race in the discipline, mm-hmm. and they have people, they have like senior scholars and and some junior scholars talking about what their experiences have been like as people of color in this field and in this department um, and what kind of what this field needs to do. And so like that kind of, I don't have a sense of where that commission on racism in the field is for our organization, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been, um, that talk- kind of I've been talking to you for quite some time and I, <laughs> I know that you're very busy and, and have lots of other things to do. So I want to wind down by asking you, well, what other projects do you have on the burner? Um, the, it's the, I have some short pieces that I'm working on, like basically some article length pieces that um, are all sort of uh, in process, in progress, some that I'm revising. A lot of it that has to do with um, Black and Latino students and assessment, and black, particularly like um, 
the instances in classrooms and and um, really interested in at, at this moment particularly Luz Leonardo's argument about how assessment in the United States right now is a kind of technology and a mechanism for the maintenance of a white nation. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in what what is that looking like in the lives of black and Latino students in conference right now. So I'm interested in, in that question and a similar kind of question about technology um, and digital literacies. And so and those are, those are, I'm really thinking of those as um, article and pieces. Um, the more extended piece that I'm looking at um, has to do with black female Black female writers in college classrooms. So it's it's a it's a extensive qualitative study where I've interviewed I've interviewed all of these women. I have essays that they have written over the course of my years teaching college composition and noticing specific themes. Um, so this this wasn't a project that I initially intended to to write, but I've gotten such resistance to writing about black women in college classrooms mm-hmm. and complex that I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, no other reason than that. Very so nice. Like, like, exactly. So that's, that's pretty much, those are my five major projects like this. And readers could find um, some discussion of, of black uh, female students in, uh, in your book um, as well, especially towards the end. And um, so uh, you, you've, you've already been, been doing some of it. And quite nicely, I might add. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Carmen Kennard, for talking to us about your new book, Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protests, and the New Century in Composition Literacy Studies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello. I hope you've enjoyed this lively interchange with Carmen Kennard about her new book, Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protest, and the New Century and Composition Literacy Studies, published by the State University of New York Press, SUNY, this year, 2013. As you have heard, this book challenges the status quo that is upheld alongside a rhetoric of dismantling racial oppression, degradation, and inequality in American schools and universities. I hope you go out and get your copy today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.